Well, good morning again. My name is Brad Cheney. If you have your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 3. Our passage will be verses 21 through 38. There's a saying in Britain that wherever the queen goes, she smells new paint. <laughs> you know, is she scheduled to come to your house for tea? Well, then preparations must be made. A fresh coat of paint on the walls and maybe some new home decor to spruce things up. If you know that the queen is coming, out with the old and with the new because she's about to arrive. Well, when the Messiah comes to earth, he too does not arrive unannounced. Someone is sent ahead of him to prepare the way, and that person turns out to be none other than John the Baptist. We talked about this last week as we looked at John's ministry. He, uh, he was making a highway for the people, and he did so two ways. First, by preaching a very confrontational message of repentance, uh, telling people that they must repent of their sins. Uh, and he, he spoke of it in, these, in this way. If you have two tunics, two pieces of undergarments, and you find a man who has none, then you're to generously give one of those to him. Likewise, if you have food and you find someone else without any, then you are to give that. If you're a soldier or a tax collector, you are to do your job honestly and to uh, you know, act with equity. So all of the things he was calling the people to were the biblical category of righteousness, both, both individually and societally. John was a strange character. We saw he, his diet consisted of locusts and wild honey, which implies that he himself was a poor man. The desert locust happens to be a large grasshopper that is eaten today by the poor in the Middle East and North Africa. It's a great source of protein, though it doesn't sound very appetizing. <laughs> and the honey would be a great source of uh, car- carbohydrates. But something I failed to mention last week is the significance of John's clothing. John wore clothes made of camel's hair and a leather belt. Did anyone else in the Bible dress that way? In fact, somebody did. That person, it turns out, was the prophet Elijah. The man who never died, but was taken up into heaven alive by a great chariot of fire. John, in dressing this way, is clearly mimicking the dress, the clothing of Elijah. And there was a widespread belief based on the book of Malachi that Elijah would precede the coming of the Messiah. Even today, when you maybe go to a Jewish home that is celebrating the Passover meal, the Passover Seder, they will often leave an empty chair at the table that no one sits at. You say, well, why? why did, a, did a family member get sick? Did someone forget to show up? And they'll say no. They'll explain to you that that empty chair is for Elijah, who must still come first. So John was that Elijah. He prepared the people through a message of repentance. He also prepared the people through baptism, calling upon people, them to be baptized. This was not an entirely new thing because in the Old Testament, there were baptisms. You had the priests who would go through a ritual washing in order to be cleansed. There was also, in the first century, a Jewish sect who we know almost entirely everything we know about this group is what we found out through the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1946. One of the great 
greatest archaeological discoveries of the 20th century, those scrolls, which were found in clay jars uh, in caves right on, the, I think, the uh, southwest, or northwest shore of the, sea, uh, uh, of the Dead Sea, rather, um, include collections of scriptures and other religious texts that were copied by the Essenes. They're, that's what they were called. And um, this was a group who had left mainstream Judaism and had fled into the desert, expecting that the Lord, the Messiah, would first appear again in the desert. In order to join their new movement, every Jew had to go through a baptism. And so that's one of the reasons why scholars today think that John the Baptist may have been either an Essene or had some ties to that group because here he is baptizing out in the desert. I I don't know uh, how accurate that is, but it's certainly an area of scholarship that continues to be probed. But why is Jesus being washed? Why is Jesus lining up among the crowd to undergo this ritual washing? I mean, Joe's already alluded to it earlier in the service. Why does the sinless one who has no sins to repent of, why is he undergoing a baptism of repentance? Well, we'll look at that um, among other things as we read now, beginning in verse 21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened. Heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Now, what is the symbolism of the Spirit's descent in the form of a dove? And we, we know the Bible is just littered with multi-layers of sim- symbolic meaning. What, did, what does that recall to mind to you? Uh, perhaps it's taking us back to Genesis chapter 6 through 9. You know, when Moses, I mean not Moses, when Noah's ark lands on the Mount Ararat, he's not sure to what extent the floodwaters have receded. So three times he sends out a dove to explore. The first time the dove flies out and finds nothing and returns to the ark. The second time the dove brings back an olive branch in its beak. So Noah can see that in fact God's judgment was over and new life had begun to spring up on the earth again. As you know the image of a dove holding an olive branch continues to be a symbol of peace today. So we have here a water event, a dove, and we have peace, which may indicate that Jesus is the new Noah from whom a new people will come. And the peace of God now rests on Jesus and flows from Jesus to this newly created people. And if you saw the annotation at the beginning of the service, at the very end of it, about uh, what from Psalm 29, was it? how the peace of God descends on Jesus and extends everywhere else. Um, The other piece of symbolism may be what's captured on the front of your bulletin with this image. If you want to look at it, I love all of the colors in this painting. Where was John baptizing? He was baptizing in the Jordan River. Now, weren't there a lot of other sources of water he could have been baptizing in? Why would he be down on the Jordan? Was there any, any significance to the Jordan? Well, yes, it was the Jordan that God's people had to pass through before they entered into the promised land. And if you notice this picture 
Look at what, what the land looks like on the other side of the water. It's fertile. It's rich. You've got flocks in their pastures and you have grain and uh, a farmer. and you, There's all of this life and fertility. Uh, Jesus, or John, was doing his baptism at the Jordan as a way to indicate that a, a new entry, uh, a new exodus was taking place as God's people, a new people were being led in to a rich new promised land. There are many other probably points of symbolism we, we can point to, but those are the two I want you to consider. So resuming back in verse 22, the spirit fell upon Jesus in the form of a dove. And then a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. These words would have echoed in the mind of the Jewish reader. Two things. Psalm 2 where God says in that psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. And Isaiah 42, you are my son in whom I love. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. And here we go through the genealogy. The son of Heli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maat, the son of Matthias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Chazam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of jo- Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meleah, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, or Salmon rather, <laughs> The son of Nashon, the son of Abinadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxed, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. I'd like to look with you at two matters this morning. The first is how does this genealogy connect with Jesus' baptism? And the second, what is the significance of the Father's two gifts that are found in the passage? So genealogy, baptism, and gifts. To begin, have you ever heard of the Maori people of New Zealand? They originated from eastern Polynesia and traveled great distances over the oceans in long canoes, eventually arriving in New Zealand between 
the years of 1250 A.D. and 1300 A.D. What's fascinating about the Maori people is they can tell you which one of the original eight canoes their ancestors arrived in and whom they descended from. Indeed, as archaeologists and sociologists have studied this people, they they believe there's every reason to consider their family trees are relatively accurate because cultures such as theirs regularly told stories of family history and carefully charted where they were from. It's only been in the modern Western world where we've had such huge social disruptions through war and immigration that we have lost touch with our ancestors more than a couple generations removed. But that was not nearly the case with other cultures such as the Maori and the Jews. The Jews were very conscious of ancestry, uh, as you may know, with very good reason, because God had made promises to their father Abraham. Lasting promises, promises of a land, of a people, promises to be their God. God, Everything in Jewish history traces her her, uh, line back to Abraham, They divvied up the promised land based on their ancestral tribes. And so they needed genealogical records to know uh, where they were to live. They divvied up their priesthood based on where you were located in the tribe of Levi and whether or not you were a son of Aaron, one of the priests. In the beginning of the book of Chronicles in the Old Testament, it begins with several chapters and names which seem very tedious to us as modern readers, but were vitally important to the Jews of their day. So the Old Testament is filled with genealogies. But when we come to the New Testament, how many genealogies do we find? Yeah, only two. And they are found at the beginning of Luke's gospel and the beginning of Matthew's gospel. Matthew's genealogy begins with a list that runs from Abraham to Jesus. And then this one in Luke is what we would call a reverse genealogy because it works backwards from Jesus through Abraham to Adam and ultimately back to God himself. The odd thing about these genealogies is when you compare them together, the Matthews and Luke's, it becomes immediately obvious that they don't match. They, there are far more considerably, more, considerably more generations between Um, Abraham and Jesus, and the names, they end up being very dissimilar at times. And so since the very early days of the church, uh, scholars have struggled to give a good reason why the genealogies branch so differently. Some have suggested that Matthew traces Joseph's line, whereas Luke traces Mary's line. But most would agree today, most scholars would agree today, that none of the answers given are entirely satisfactory. And we really don't know why the two diverge. I, I say that because it's kind of exciting, really. There's, there are new things yet to be discovered in God's word. Um, there's more things for us to learn what God was intending to say. We don't know yet. Just as we're discovering new things in science with with technology, so there are new treasures to be discovered still 2,000 years later in God's word. But here's the point I want to get across to you. The fact that Luke traces his genealogy through Noah and through Adam 
all the way back to God himself, I think it's pretty easy to determine the purpose of Luke's list. Luke is saying in in no uncertain terms that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, that might be a very strange way to prove the point because by that same token, everyone in the list is a son of God (laughs) since everyone in the list is related to Noah and to Adam. But Luke certainly means something much more when he says this. When he uses the phrase son of God, he means the son of God. And somehow, for Luke's readers, this point would have been persuasively communicated through this genealogy. I find it fascinating or curious at the very least how different cultures find different arguments persuasive. Like for us, we read this and we would not be persuaded Jesus is the son of God through these 77 generations. Um, but, but for them, it was most likely an aha Voila moment, because just like every person is wired differently and thinks differently, so too are our cultures. Look with me at verse 22, because this is, real, this is the main verse in the passage. Verse 22, where God declares, heaven opens. Wonder what that was like, heaven opening. And God declares, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well well pleased. This is the father's first gift to his son. When I preached a sermon a couple of uh, months ago on marriage, you may remember me saying this. I started out the sermon by saying something along the lines of marriage is the vortex of your life. If your marriage is strong, no matter what else is happening, your career could be going down the tubes A friend could have betrayed you, but no no matter what else is happening, and if your marriage is strong, you move out into your daily life in relative strength. Of course, it works the opposite way as well. If if all your friends love you and you have the house you want and the car you want and the career you want, but if your marriage is weak, you will move out into the world in weakness. But you know what? There's another human relationship where this is even more fundamentally true. If marriage creates a sort of day-to-day vortex, there's another relationship which is really an all-of-life vortex. What relationship am I referring to? It's your relationship with your earthly father. If you had an earthly father who was well-pleased in you, who declared in unambiguous terms many times over that he was in love with you and you had his complete approval, then it really didn't matter if you grew up poor or if you grew up rich. You were able to enter into the whole rest of your life with that unbelievable foundational strength. This was the gift of the father to his son. For the next three years of Jesus' life, the Bible never tells us if he doubted his calling. If Jesus was, oh, am I really a Messiah? Am I really not the Messiah? I don't think it's very helpful to speculate about that. But we do know this, that if you turn your Bible maybe one page, flip the page to chapter 4, what is the very next episode that takes place in Jesus' life after his baptism? He is led out into the wilderness and tempted by the devil on this singular point, 
Are you really the son of God? Are you really the loved son of the father? It is principally on this point that the devil tries to tempt Jesus to disbelieve. Uh, and I think it's very noteworthy that uh, when, you, when you examine our lives, uh, if we didn't have that secure approval and love of our fathers growing up, how much more difficult has our, has our life been as a result? It's not by accident. It's not by accident. Fathers are absolutely crucial to shaping our identity. You are my son. That is a declaration of identity. And, by, and absolutely crucial to giving us stability. Um, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. And if your father is well pleased in you, then you can kind of become more, more comfortable in your own skin. This was the gift of the father to the son. Now, I want to say to you young men in the church who may or may not yet have a family, please don't make the mistake that some of us dads have made in failing to give your kids this fundamental foundation. They need to hear a booming voice, as it were, from heaven declaring that you are the greatest kid in the world and I will always be in love with you no matter what. For this is the gift of the father to his son. And we are made in their image. This is why we want fatherly approval so badly. This is why we need fatherly love so much. This is why we are left permanently scarred whenever it is absent. This is Trinitarian theology that helps explain our family and our parenting and even our society. I mean, why do you think the devil has, has targeted the family so hard in the 20th century? Because he's trying to underdo, uh, undo something that is so fundamental to God's own identity. And being, I should say. Some of you remember one of the big events we had in 2018. We had prominent author and theologian Peter Lightheart come to All Saints in the spring to hold a series of lectures on the doctrine of the Trinity. They were kind of lectures and classes. Part of the class section of that was we read some very thick theology from Augustine and Bart and Zitziulis on the doctrine of the Trinity. And I consider myself a pretty theologically astute guy. I got into those readings and, you know, they were a hundred feet over my head. They completely airmailed me, although I know some of you were like, this is perfect, and it scratched your itch. But the one almost revolutionary idea I walked away with from Peter's lectures was, was this, simply this. He said that the actions of the members of the Trinity on earth are always reflective of their eternal relations. What does that mean? Every time we see the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit at work doing some action in the Gospels, the reason they are doing that action is because they've always been that way. They've always been doing that kind of thing. Like the Father has always, for all eternity, been declaring that the Son is his well-beloved, well-pleased one. 
And the Father has always been pouring out the Holy Spirit, which is the second gift we'll get to in a minute, upon the Son for all of eternity. If you understand that about God, then doesn't it completely change the way that you look at God? No wonder God is an eternally happy being if God in his being is Father, Son, loving blessedness, right? You know, he can't be a cranky grandfather in heaven. He, he has to be this fountain of inexpressible Father, Son love. And so no wonder then why we need this as a foundation to all of our human relationships. I, I know I talk about it a lot, but the necessity of secure, safe, permanent love of a father for his sons and daughters is what God wants for all the people of this world because we are created in his image and that is who he is. I'll say this finally, that even if you did not have a father, an earthly father like that, uh, the good news of the Christian gospel is that the God, your heavenly father, wants to be that father to you. And he promises that if you believe on the son, you will be adopted into his family and he will be that father to you. And if you have your heavenly father as the vortex of your life, then that's really all you need to go back into the world on Monday through Saturday because you have that security. All right, the second gift of the father to the son is, as I already said, at his baptism, the Spirit was poured out upon Jesus. Jesus' entire ministry that would take place over the next three years, his preaching, healing, and delivering, would be accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' baptism is where we might say he was ordained by God to fulfill his three important official offices. The offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king. All of those roles in Israel, in the Old Testament, you had to be anointed in order to go and serve in those roles. And so Jesus is anointed by the Holy Spirit that he might be a prophet to declare the word of God to all people, a priest to make intercession between the people and God, and a king to rule over the world in righteousness and equity. So we might say, yes, the baptism and the gift of the Spirit is his ordination to these offices. What we're going to see as the gospel of Luke unfolds is that Jesus is the supreme example of a human life that is totally dependent on the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the son of God. We see that. And as the son, he is also the quintessential example of what it means to live a spirit-filled life. So how did Jesus grow in wisdom, stature, and favor with God and man? By the Spirit. How did Jesus love his enemies and forgive those who transgress against him? By the Spirit. How did Jesus overcome all temptation and conquer the devil completely? It is the same Spirit that now dwells in the lives of each son and daughter of God. So when I think about All Saints in 2019, I, I want us to keep our eyes on the main thing, the main mission, and not get distracted by lesser things. The Spirit empowered Jesus for three years to do ministry. 
And the Spirit, as Joe uh, prayed already, or earlier in the service, has been poured up, out upon the church so that we would go out into the world and make disciples. Our main mission is in the power of the Spirit to go and make disciples. And by that, I mean assisting Christians who already believe to come into like full, robust maturity in Christ. I mean, to be his completely devoted disciple. I, I mean, to train our kids in the faith so well that they, they cherish the faith and they cherish Christ. That's part of making disciples. And then, of course, it also means going out and finding people who have not yet believed and helping them enter into a saving relationship with God by faith. And we accomplish this mission in a variety of ways, by preaching, by teaching, by the sacraments, by prayer, by hospitality, by acts of mercy and sacrifice in the world, by evangelism, by worship, and it is always by the power of the Spirit of God. Can we keep that as our main focus? We must. We really must. I've spoken to you before of uh, J.D. Greer. J.D. Greer planted the Summit Church. Sorry that my voice is like dying today. Uh, J.D. Greer planted the Summit Church 15 years ago in uh, Duke Blue Devil Country in Durham, North Carolina. And he's now the 62nd president of the Southern Baptist Convention. I have tremendous respect for Greer and and regularly follow his blog. Here's what he said to the Summit Church at the beginning of 2019. It's, It's useful for us to hear as well. Quote, when churches like ours get big and settled, so to speak, they experience a natural inertia. Within a generation, they move from mission to maintenance. They go from being focused on making disciples to being comfortable in the institution. He calls this the difference between first-generation faith and second-generation faith. That's a good way of putting it. Because it can be true of a church from her infancy to 10 or 15 years later. It can also be true of our individual Christian lives when we first believe and then where we're at 10 or 15 years later. First-generation to second-generation there can be a great decline. Um, By sharing this with you, I'm not saying that All Saints is necessarily guilty of doing these things. What I'm saying is we must be on guard against these things. And here's how he put it. First generation has an attitude of, I'll do whatever it takes. Second generation does only what I'm asked to do. First generation assumes responsibility for the mission. Second generation assumes that someone else will do it. First generation expects personal sacrifice. Second generation expects personal comfort. First generation sees problems and seeks solutions. Second generation sees problems and complains. First generation sees possibilities and dreams about what could be. Second generation sees barriers and reasons to quit. First generation has a bold trust in God. Second generation sits satisfied in the stability of the institution. First generation fears holding anything back from God. Second generation fears commitment. First generation feels privileged to be part of this thing. Second generation feels entitled to be to uh, the benefits of the institution. Those were all his words. Um, 
And he concludes it this way. Which of the two lists best describes you individually? And what about your church? Which best describes your church? Uh, We must guard against slipping into second generation faith. The way we will do so is by living in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. In conclusion, uh, it has long been discussed why Jesus would have wanted to be baptized by John since John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, repentance of sin, and Jesus, the sinless man, had nothing to repent of. So why is Jesus standing in the line of people waiting to be baptized? Interestingly, in the other Gospels, we find out that though Jesus was John's cousin, John didn't even recognize him. I mean, presumably, they hardly, may never have even met. John was in the wilderness, we gather, for the majority of his life. Jesus was in obscurity in the northern parts of Israel, living in Nazareth as a carpenter. They probably never had met before. So why, and John, when he, when Christ, he finally sees Christ, it's like God peels back the, the, the um, bandages from his eyes and he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here I think, friends, we see in the baptism of John, as, as Joe already alluded to, we see the faint outlines. We see the faint outlines of the cross. No, Jesus is not repenting of sin in the baptize, baptism. He is identifying with sins, sins that he never committed. He submits to a baptism of repentance for sins he never committed so that on the cross he will die for sins he never committed so that each and every sin would be forgiven. Luke is the only, uh, we, we get the baptism of John in all four gospels, but Luke is the only gospel that tells us what Jesus was doing the moment he, he uh, came out of the water. What does it say he was doing? It says he was praying. The only gospel that tells us Jesus was praying as he was finishing his baptism. What do you think he was praying about? Could it have been for strength? For courage? Could it have been that his father would encourage him with a sign Could it have been that he could have something he would always be able to return to? Like one confident piece of assurance he could always go back to over the next three years of his life, no matter how hard it was. Could it be that that's exactly why the father made this pronouncement and then empowered him with the spirit? Because he knew that Jesus was was praying for that very thing. The time had come for his ministry to begin. The fatherly approved, divinely loved, spirit-anointed son would be headed to the wilderness for a battle with the devil and not long after for a journey to a very desert place, a forsaken place, the cross of Calvary. Amen.